0: Playbook, a podcast that explores what it takes to create a thriving career right here in the retail auto industry. I'm your host, Michael Cirillo. Delighted, joyed, thrilled to be joined by Matt Lasher, the Director of Marketing for the West Turr Auto Group. You got to pay attention. This is a digital masterclass. Okay, so this has been a long time coming, but you know what I found? I found that the conversations that have to brew and stew for a little bit really turn out to be uh, deep and tremendous and super valuable they're the ones that i always get a ton of feedback on and of course this is no different matt man like i I'm, i've been looking forward to this conversation for a while especially i've been following you on linkedin uh which i recommend everybody that listens go and check out matt's uh, profile and the things that he posts um you're you're how many how many stores are in your group that you're now overseeing the marketing of yeah, the elevator pitch
1: on West Her, we're a 26-store group in Buffalo, New York. 26 and growing, so that number, by, maybe by the time this podcast is released, it'll be bigger probably, but 26 stores, 2,200 employees. We sell 50,000 cars a year. We service 450,000. And the most unique thing about West Her is all of our locations and everything that we do is within 60 miles of each other, and 80% of what we do is within 30 miles of each other. So super, super densely populated in Western New York, Buffalo,
0: New York. Wow. How... How do you get into that? Like, what's your journey in the car business been to get you into the seat you're sitting in now?
1: Sure. Yeah. So out of college, I worked at Nissan North America and and, uh, fresh out of college, Consumer Affairs, 1-800-NISSAN. Thank you for calling Nissan. This is Matt. How can I help you? Um, And got a job sort of through the ranks there doing some sales and marketing jobs for the Infinity West region. Uh, out in Southern California and just looked around, didn't want to be any of my bosses. So, um, I quit, I had 10,000 bucks to my name. I was 25. I sold t-shirts out of the trunk of my car and I played poker for two years to pay my bills. Um, and, uh, you know, like, so that was fun, great time, San Francisco, Las Vegas, but, um, but I wanted to get married, have kids. I had an opportunity to sell cars, uh, at West her. So I moved back to my hometown, Buffalo, New York, sold cars, uh, did finance. I was a finance manager during cash for clunk for those that remember that. Mm. Um, I was a sales manager, used car manager for a few years. And I've been in this marketing role now, I guess, eight maybe nine, almost nine years now. Um, And so a lot has changed. We didn't have a marketing department prior to me. So um, we had more of sales oriented mindset um, and we had a fragmented advertising sort of strategy where some people would do parts of things. So for many years, it was really just me being like the Tasmanian devil trying to get our arms around how many different things that were out there. Um, And then slowly but surely, we've got this sort of gravity that is a marketing team now. And I got a, uh, a bunch of people that helped me execute and it's, it's been great.
0: But did you, I mean, so going from the sales side of things into marketing, like what was it about the marketing that kind of pulled you back into it?
1: Well, I've always been sort of a marketer by trade. Like if I think about why I even sold T-shirts out of the trunk of my car, I just wanted a brand to market. So I had a Shopify site in 2006. I was making YouTube videos back in 2006 and seven. I wish I would have stayed on the YouTube path because I probably wouldn't be even talking to you now. I'd be just like a diamond. That'd be a diamond YouTube plaque on the wall behind you instead of the (laughs) buffalo. Yeah. So, but no, but you know, so I think I've just always had that in me, um, knew that I wanted to do that. And I've had this opportunity here to sort of help curate and, and, and shape the Western brand. So it's just been a part of my thing and something I've been always interested in. Um, and you know, The car business is great for that, right? We get to play with every marketing tool, tactic, technique that's out there. Um, And it's a great privilege uh, to represent not only a, a company that does it the right way, right? So I think I wouldn't be as successful here if we didn't have like that end execution. I talk mostly about, you know, the human element of our business. And I think marketing needs that. Marketing needs tons of empathy towards the sales side of the organization. And sometimes it can be a combative situation, I think, um, where one side feels like they're pulling more of the weight, but both sides need to respect each other. And, you know, I'm tremendously grateful for our team on the front lines doing it every day, man, you know, when when, when they're just working hard.
0: Yeah. You've been, uh, and I mean, you know, I look to you as an example. I mean, you're, you're very open and vocal. Like w- when I see your posts on LinkedIn, like you bring people inside of your organization um, with every post you're giving more insights. I know with, with COVID and we've here at the podcast, we've kind of moved on from the COVID conversation. Um, but I know, you know, you were very upfront because the the narrative in the industry s- tended to lean towards, well, I, I still have my mask too, by the way. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, as far as like, like anything, right? Human nature, something happens and just we all leech towards it. And, and very quickly, the whole digital retail conversation really started to to creep into things. And you were you. I remember right out of the gates. You're like, look, I got 26 rooftops. Here's what we found. We've played with a lot of digital retail models. And I think a lot of people would be shy of what well, we know for a fact in this industry. A lot of people are shy of bringing people transparently into their organization, What is it that drives you to want to share that narrative uh, out in the industry?
1: I think it's just a self-awareness of being vulnerable and like embracing your vulnerabilities. Um, There's power in that, right? Like I think there's so much ego and fronting in our business, especially in the marketing side. People are afraid to not know the answer, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, I'm okay. I want to be proven wrong right? I mean, my technique often in a lot of conversations, especially when it gets into this gray area of like what's working and what's not, I might give an extreme opinion. I don't even believe in because I want to hear what the person on the other side of the table says. Mm. Often if they don't push back, I know that they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right. And they're just sort of using talking points and that sort of thing. But I think it's really important that we're all on this journey together and we're all figuring it out. And there's things that are, I mean, like, Instagram stories where a place where we execute on wasn't a thing, you know, a couple of years ago. Right. Right. Yeah. So nobody knows exactly like how it how it should go. And I think we should have fun with that. We should be OK with the fact that, yeah, we could try this. Um, and also, you know, ultimately, we make all sorts of different decisions, especially at a company like Wester. We make inconsistent decisions with money. Right, um, not everything's perfectly optimized. I think in digital marketing space, we want to like optimize everything, mm-hmm. but often there's like these political decisions. There's reasons why you're making a decision. That's like, okay, yeah, this thing, this tool might suck, but I'm gonna like sign up for it anyways because, right? right. Of some of these macro decisions. So I think that nuance is is an important thing worth talking about and and exploring. But yeah, just being vulnerable, man, and self aware, I think is uh, is the only way forward for people to connect. That's amazing.
0: Does that feed into, um, you know, I guess your opinions around OEM programs, co op programs, or mandated this and that? Is it, do you think that's more of a political thing? And there's kind of outlying decisions as to why I would be a part of that or not be a part of it?
1: Yeah. I think there's a tremendous uh, pressure on dealer groups like Wester that have represent all these brands. You know, it's a great privilege to be a new car dealer. Right. And it's a franchise and it's a, basically a monopoly. Call it what it is. Right. Like if you want to buy a Subaru in Buffalo, New York, there's one of two choices you have. Right. Currently, right. Sure. And so so with that comes a responsibility. So we have to play the game that the OEMs think that they're playing the OEMs, because I worked at Nissan, I'm sympathetic to this idea of like or empathetic towards managing a dealer network. So you have a dealer network that has a variety of skill and aptitude and awareness and all of this stuff. So if you're an executive at a, at a manufacturer, you're trying to move the ball forward. And sometimes it hurts the innovative dealers. It hurts the dealers that know what they're doing because now you're going to bring the bottom performers up a little bit and maybe you bring the top performers down through these like mandates, through these sort of, um, Difficult structures to programs and the co-op programs add a huge distortion to it. My biggest issue with co-op programs is lack of transparency uh, with vendor billing and how certain things and deals are made. You know, the shift digitals of the world have added a lot of expense and construct to our digital ecosystem. That's often not necessary. I have, I don't know, six or seven performance manager people that try to call me to like give me feedback on one of my 40 websites. Sure. I don't have time to even talk to this person and they don't know anything about our digital ecosystem. Right. But yet we're paying for that. I know that's built into the, you know, matrix, sure. right? Like shift is, is getting their money for that person plus the profit, right? right? Um, along with sort of opace, o- opaque billings and like you don't even know what percentage is admin fee and what actually goes to media spend. Uh, but really, you know, digital retailing as an example, I think we were chatting before this started. I'm pretty against digital retailing as it sits today. I'm a huge proponent of customer affordability and customer payments because I think we're all payment driven. But I think the tools today are broken. I think every digital retailing tool is solving the wrong problem. They believe that customers can get to the correct VDP. Customers don't know what they can afford. That's why there's 350 salespeople at West Herb. Mm. Customers don't know what their options are. That's why they ask, hey, I need like a third row seat. What are my choices? (laughs) Right. We're framing these tools as like a panacea that every consumer is going to be able to find themselves on this perfect car and they're going to be able to work through this eight step process to negotiate something. Right. Right. And it's just a it's a it's a fraudulent, you know, effort to say, this is the way forward. I think we're trying to evolve and I'll be sympathetic to the vendors too. Like, look, you got to start somewhere. Right. But this mad dash over the last six months to install digital retailing and push it into the dealer network, totally wrong. Yeah. We have now three digital retailing tools that have been, we've uh, committed to um, three different tools within our organization. I want one tool if I have to have one, but we have three different tools because of political pressure and because of OEM nuance. Mm -hmm. So now we're just increasing the fragmentation of our consumer experience, which is going to make it overall net negative experience for somebody shopping at West So if I'm competing against Carvana or Amazon or whomever, I've now made it infinitely more difficult to manage the programs. The user experiences are different. A customer doesn't know what they're even getting when they go to one of Hur's websites versus another. Right. So it's created a huge problem. And at present, you know, there's really no solution. But we make these decisions out of political reasons. So like I mentioned at the beginning of the OEM relationship, we have a responsibility to be a good corporate partner. And so, you know, look, we can take this short term and say, fine we'd love to educate the OEMs that'll listen in terms of we've been doing this for a few few years. We have some context and perspective. You know, one of the brands we had to install a digital retailing tool on, we sell 65% of the new vehicles in the market. Wow. So, but they forced the digital retailing tool on us claiming that we were going to lose market share if we didn't have it. And we know that to not be true, but we did it anyways because we want the product We want to keep getting the product to sell. So, you know, so co-op creates a huge distortion, especially when dealers think it's free money. The General Motors program in particular, most vendors sell me stuff that's like, oh, it's co-ops. Well, what they don't ever understand is that the way the General Motors program works is it's not 100% reimbursed. It's 40 percent on forty cents on the dollar. So I'm still paying for it with dealer money. It's going into a bucket that I have to use on approved expenses or whatever, but it's not 100%. It's my money to begin with. Right? right. And they frame it as like, well, it's free, you know, and I think dealers even misunderstand programs at times. So it's a fascinating ecosystem. Um, I think there's some challenge. There's probably some good, but it is stifling innovation. It is it is disrupting the consumer uh, experience and it's not allowing the most innovative dealers to go. I think if you're a CSI is strong and you're a good operator, you should be able to use whatever tool set you want right? You should be able to create the tech stack that you want because that's how we'll get more dealers, regionalized dealer groups, like a $2 billion West her that can fight with a Carvana. We're big enough to make our own tech. We're big enough right. to invent, you know, and, and go in those spaces. So, you know, I hope that there's a little more open-mindedness, but I'm not confident that 20 OEMs will all, all of a sudden come to, come to like see the light bulb and be like, oh, you know what, Matt, you're right. Let's, uh, let's give you free reign.
0: Yeah. And do you think the, there's the element? Uh, one layer up from the dealer between shift digital and the OEM where the OEM's like, okay, well, I mean, they're just going to make this whole thing easier for us because they know, quote unquote, know what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so then that deal happens and then that deal gets passed on to you like, hey, that's why we're a part of this program. That's why we've selected them. They've got the experience
1: no doubt shift and others proclaim that they have all the answers of how this will self-manage this. So the the, the deal is with the executive at the OEM who probably doesn't have enough experience in this realm, right? There's just not that many OEM marketing executives and that sort of thing that have had retail operation experience. So they're not, because it's a different skill set to manage an OEM is a different game than managing the dealers, right? So here I am CEO or, or CMO at Nissan. I have a problem. I have, a 1,000 Nissan dealers that are poorly performing in digital. But I'd say this. I think the mistake is believing that they need to solve the dealer's problem. I think the OEMs should focus entirely on their tier one efforts. They already spend millions of dollars on their, o, on their OEM website. The configurators are better than the dealer websites. The emotive pictures, the package descriptions, the incentives, all that stuff is already available. Now what they need to do a better job of connecting to the dealer network is just providing leads back to the dealer operators, right? Don't care about the tier 3 ecosystem. Just let the dealers, the innovative ones, do what they're going to do. The subpar ones are going to do what they're going to do also, right? Just by mandating some, you know, approved vendor for a website doesn't mean that you've solved the problem. So, I think if they just back up a bit on the tier 3 side and focus entirely on how can they distribute leads via their tier one website and focus all their marketing efforts towards the Ford.coms of the world, the Chevy.coms of the world that can work within the dealer franchise model. They just need to distribute the leads, you know, equitably and whatever rules they want to, you know, come up with for that.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's the the layer from where you are basically rubber meets the road, essentially where you're going to have ultimately infinitely a better understanding of what drives your market and consumers in your markets, then they will. There's just no possible way to have enough people internally at an OEM dedicated to each market. I mean, you have your regional manager, but that regional manager is not living in the community nine times out of 10. They're not seeing the, the subtle nuances of the economic drivers in that area or, or, they're not understanding why Corollas are not selling in the prairies where 80% of the people make their living off of agriculture and why you're ultimately selling more trucks and less of right. this. And but, but they get their, you know, things that say, hey, well, you need to sell this. You're not showing up on this report the way that we need you to show up, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of book publishing. Um, when I published my book, there were so many differing opinions. And I basically came down to you guys know how to publish a book. You have no idea how to market it. Yeah. You're like, you, you know how to create the actual book, but you, you have no idea how to actually sell books. Like there's no way I'm buying 11,000 copies of my own book so I can make a New York, <laughs> York Times bestseller list.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's well, not I mean, to, you know, I've never heard that analogy before, but I really like it. I mean, especially as it relates to automotive. I think the OEMs are terrible about marketing their own product to the dealer network. Mm. Like so, there's there's examples where I don't know about a new product launch. Like Lincoln renamed all their lineup, right? Cortair and Nautilus and all this right. stuff. It took me probably a year <laughs> to like figure out like what's what again and like what like and so I, you know, look, you if chart, I'm hard not understanding what things are, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so I think sometimes even like like if we think about micro content now, we think about. As as marketers, what we do to distribute content across networks and other things, like it's almost like the OEMs could do a better job of creating micro and usable content for people like me. Be like, hey, look, I don't know how you're going to use it, I don't know where you're going to even put it, but here's a 15 second thing that could be suitable for Instagram stories. Mm. Okay, cool. Let me download it let me be able to play with it or do something with it. Maybe edit it, maybe add a logo to it or something. Sure. But like, you know, it, or, or what about these build configurators? Why can't that just be syndicated to every dealer website? Why yeah. do the website providers have their own? That is not as good. Right. right. Like it just optimize it. If it's an AB test sort of optimization thing, the dealers aren't going to do it. So just solve it, solve for it. Here's how we want the configurator path to go. Right. Yeah. Um, And I don't think so. I don't think the OEMs think enough about that, and they don't empower their field staff to know enough about that. They put pressure on their field staff to check boxes. You mentioned pandering to a report, right? So, like often we have these group reports of like leads or like whatever time on site or Mm -hmm. you know bounce rate or something. I was going to say bounce rate, yeah, or you know conversion percentage or what (laughs) you know whatever. Mm -hmm. And and so we get compared against all the other dealers in the region on a report that means nothing and somehow we're supposed to pander to that report right like like well, don't or the you want birds, your
0: dealer excellent excellence awards you know three birds and others they yeah, have these yeah.
1: like report card things right. you know and like okay like you're looking at a, this one little fragmented piece of an ecosystem. westercom represents over 50% of our website ecosystem. So we have a website group site that's on par with cars.com and auto trader and cars, car gurus in our market. Right. And so it gets 10 to 15 times the traffic as a single standalone website gets in our network. Wow. So when an OEM comes to me to talk to me about my one child site that gets 10,000 sessions or less a month, right? I'm like, yeah, I, Sure. What, like, what, what do you need? What, what like, what's wrong right now? <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like that Mark Zuckerberg quote in the, in the social, social network where he's like, you're getting like my minimum amount of attention, like required or whatever. I forget exactly. Yeah, how that yeah, seemed yeah. Well. Um, I don't know.
0: Yeah. It's like, basically, if I have to sit here and listen to you, if the choice is to sit here and listen to you or watch. Shaquille O'Neal star in the movie Kazam, I'm going to watch him star in the worst movie ever. (laughs) made. Yeah, I totally I'm with you. I
1: I will say there is some value and some actually talented shift digital type reps that like do care about their job and like they're doing a good like we had a a CTA was broken on one of our child sites and I didn't know about it for like six months. A a shift digital person came in and was like auditing this website and was like, hey, why don't you have this? It was like an e-price button or something. Why don't you have this e-price button? And I was like, I don't know. That's weird. Why? Where is it? Right. Yeah. And it turned out like it just broke somehow, like our vendor broke it. And OK, well, that, like that was good value add, like you found something that was clearly broken, like good.
0: Yeah. Like, and you know what I would say to that, too? Uh, like, I agree with that. I don't think any of these companies start with an evil intention. You know, like you, you mentioned the social dilemma earlier. Um, we watched it the other night, my wife and I, and I'm like, I need to share this, but I feel trapped because the only place I know where to share it is on social and I think there was a comment made. It was the the former president of Pinterest, who was also the director of monetization. He's basically created the monetary model for Facebook. He said, "You know, there were so many good things happening, and that was really our intention. You know, long lost family members were connecting with one another. Um, people were solving crimes. Like there were missing people were being found. We didn't anticipate the flip side of that coin, which was, but how are people going to start to figure out how to use this? And yeah. I think, you know." To, to the point of this conversation, I don't think anybody sat down, the OEM, Shift Digital, who any of these companies sat down and they're like, we're going to do wrong by everything. But I I think we, as, as a whole, we tend to be naive to the flip side of that coin, which is, but what happens when we introduce the monetization model? What happens when... Um, we hire people and don't pay attention to our own internal culture. And now we hire somebody that actually doesn't really care. And they're just here to pick up a paycheck. They might have the knowledge and expertise, but they don't care about their dealer network or like there's so many different factors that feed to the whole narrative of basically where we've arrived today that the easiest thing I think as a whole for us to see is the fact that everything is just super political and it's greed driven. Like that's kind of how it looks. Um, and then everybody's like, left yeah, off. Like, I'll give you a,
1: like the Ford Ford, uh, signed up auto alert as like a thing, right? So like sure. the Ford dealers are going to use auto alert. We had been using auto alert for five years uh, prior to that, right. uh, the Auto alert deal, um, which there was a former Ford executive that worked at auto alert. So there was a backdoor tie relationship tie in there and they pushed it onto the dealer network, basically requiring it because it created an incentive that you couldn't get otherwise, unless you had auto alert. So our costs went up. For auto alert, right? We already had an established relationship. We had been using it for years. Right. So our costs for that tool went up. I went straight to the Ford execs. I'm like, what gives? Like, how are you going to make me pay more for something we've already been using? But ultimately, like, that's the game. And so that margin, Right. That that paid for something It paid for, you know, the Ford direct initiative or, you know, offsetting some of the extra incentive that went into the tool. But there's not always that level of transparency. So I agree. I don't think things started at a nefarious level. But I do think that they grow that way over time because people's business objectives and goals are not in alignment. And OEM's goal is to wholesale as many cars as they can. Right. A dealership's goal is to maximize profit within their own ecosystem, taking inventory and, se- and selling used cars and service, right? right? They do not have the same goals, right? So ultimately, you know, they're not mutually aligned. So I think it's interesting when OEMs push technology and process into the dealership because it's not really their process to define.
0: Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And I love what you just said about, well, we've got two different uh, goals here. And I don't think sometimes we... And that feeds into what you were saying earlier about self-awareness. We don't realize that there actually is a disconnect. And the sooner that we understand that there is a disconnect between their goals and our goals, I think that's a, a huge bridge that we can cross to start making connections about, okay, well, then how do we align or what can we do to maybe get the best alignment so that things seem much more sequential and much more unified? Sure. I mean, look at like a Cox, for example, right?
1: We'll pick on them for a second. Cox buys dealer.com for $4 billion from dealer track or whatever. Buys dealer.com. And what's their incentive? Their incentive is to maximize revenue, the reoccurring revenue of the 10 or 15,000 dealer clients that they have within that portfolio. They do not have the incentive to innovate and disrupt themselves. What they want is to get the $4 billion back that they spent, right? And then after they start making enough money that they feel comfortable, they're like, "Ah, maybe we'll dabble in some innovation right and so we as the dealer partners are like sort of left behind holding the bag of these dysfunctional organizations when e- when CDK buys elead well is CDK going to innovate elead no they're going to roll with elead what it is and the 3500 dealers that use it or whatever 4000 dealers that use it and they're just going to milk that cow for as long as until and then, until they start getting dealer defections, or maybe there's an upstart that like starts taking share, sure. and they're like, hey, well, now we got to do something." So these big tech conglomerates are totally not in alignment with a dealership like a Wester that really wants to innovate and push and like. I want the best consumer experience possible, whether it's in-store, digital, at home. I don't care. Like, I want it to be seamless. I want us to know who you are, contextualized, right? I want to understand those problems, and I want our team to understand that problem so we can be fast and nimble and, you know, educated and make a great make, make a great experience. So the tools that we have today, though, will never get us there, and there's no incentive for the vendors that we have today to do it.
0: Yeah, wow. That's like... I- that's the perfect summa- summation I think I've heard in a long time of just the, the challenge that we face. So my question is, what do we do? Do we just merely have to exist then? What can we be doing then at, it, it, I love that you're using the term ecosystem. Um, I think that's just the perfect explanation of the, everything that encompasses all the moving pieces. So what can we do inside of our ecosystems for the dealer owner or the, ma- the marketing director or the sales manager who's listening right now? Where does their focus, in your opinion, need to be in order to make the most of all the the spinning plates? You know, it's really about process and self-awareness.
1: Like every dealership is going to have. I think they're different uh, things that they care mostly about. Um, But you know what? Often it's the non-glamorous hard work every day. So the Buffalo Bills hired Sean McDermott as the head coach of the Bills. And his phrase was trust the process. Right. Not caring about the result but caring about what are we doing every day to get better, right? Hiring the right people, recruiting the right players that have fit within the culture, going to practice to practice, given everything you got every moment of every opportunity and trying to get incrementally better. And I can tell you at West her, like we live that out of like, I don't know how Scott did that exactly, but he's a humble guy, but he's created this sense of urgency and almost anxiety or insecurity in all of us as alpha top performers that there's no satisfaction. I mean, we sold, I think we sold, I think we sold, I don't know, 5,500 cars or something last month. But like, we spent like five seconds high fiving each other, maybe.
0: Yeah. And then it's like, well, how do we get better? Like, what do we do next? It's like the Chicago Bulls. For sure.
1: Totally, totally. Because you have to. So, what I loved about The Last Dance was Michael Jordan's ability to craft a narrative um, amongst like a rookie in the league or something. He created a construct to be aggressive or competitive against. Right. And I see the best operators in automotive doing the same thing. They care about winning every scenario, every situation. We don't want to fall flat ever. So when we make a mistake, we got to do better than even. We got to make it right. We got to exceed customers expectations, not in a generic CSI way, but like in a legitimate. Wow. We actually did something above and beyond. And as we grow our scale and challenge to that is how do we do that at scale? Like Scott Beeler is notorious for driving around every dealership on a Saturday, giving hundreds out of his wallet to customers. Well, that doesn't scale when you're doing the amount of transactions that we're doing. And when we go to 40 or 50 dealerships, right. how are we going to do that? Sure. But that's why I think technology and systems and caring about marketing and the process, trusting the process will matter. But, you know, even if you're a single point today, go to your CRM. Did you look at your CRM today? Did you look at the ten people that you talked to yesterday? Right. Did you talk to the? Did you follow up on the seven that you didn't sell? Did you call them today? Like, you know, it's not about necessarily getting new customers. It's about doing better with the customers you already have. And sure. like, it's like a social media recommendation, right? Like they say, don't worry about how many followers you got. Don't worry, we care about that one comment. If somebody gives you a comment. Engage with it. Sure. Like, I don't have a million followers. I'm not like some celebrity or whatever. Right. So, if somebody's taking the time out of their day to like give me their opinion on something that's relative related to what I posted about, I want to thank them for that or engage with it or recognize it. Same thing in the car business. If somebody walks through your door at the dealership, you got to be so appreciative and thankful. And what can you do to move the ball forward? Maybe you don't sell them a car this time. Sometimes when we don't sell cars and we lose it to a competitor, we send a letter for $1,000 off their next purchase. So mm. cool, you know, Mr. Cirillo, we didn't earn your business this uh, this time around. You know, obviously we're disappointed in that. We want to do better. We want to do what we can to earn your business next time. Here's a letter for $1,000 off. <laughs> wow. Like, like, yeah. Go. You know what I'm saying, and like, like, look, we're we're human. We screw up, and we got to acknowledge that. And you know, we we mentioned vulnerability; that needs to be in our process too. Arrogant managers or arrogant, like, egocentric people—that is not going to be the way forward in this world of connection and like experience. So, you know, being self-aware to how your organization runs like that—like, does the sales manager actually get up and talk to the customer? If yeah. they don't, maybe that's something that you focus on right? Mm. Trust the process, right? Yeah. What can you do to eliminate friction, eliminate pain, eliminate confusion, eliminate, speed up the process in the dealership. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that, but throughput I think is going to be the next chapter for dealerships. And how can we be more efficient with the same number or less number of people in our building and sell the same number or more cars, right? How do we get more done with fewer people, fewer resources? And, you know, it'd be interesting to see how we do that, but I think technology will have to help us partly.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, and that's the point. I think for me, you know, technology, the early innovation of tech in the auto industry made everybody believe. And and by the way, this was the narrative that was pushed. It's like, hey, sign up for a insert website provider here. And you're going to get more traffic leads and sales. And we had a solid 15 to 18 years of all of them saying, no, our websites are going to help you get more traffic leads and sales. And then a new tech startup happens and they say, no, our tool solves this problem. That's going to help you get more traffic leads and sales. We created a total dependency upon the tech rather than using it to offset or maximize or make more scalable the things that truly matter as a foundational point of reference. Like you said, um, the manager coming and talking to people himself. I mean, right. gosh, I you, you go to an Applebee's and the manager walks around and says, hey, how how are you enjoying your visit with Can us? Can I get today? you a water, right? Can I get you a new water? <laughs> no, you know, but I'm, I'm get- a manager. I, I used to be a lot boy and a sales person and now I'm a sales I don't get people coffee. We use a we use a tool that
1: costs $249 for our whole group. It's called Delighted. It's a net promoter score survey, and what it does is anybody that spends money at Wester, anybody, sales service, whatever, they get an email on a scale of uh, zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend the Wester Auto Group to a friend? It's intentionally generic. It's not how is your experience at the Subaru store. Would you recommend the Wester Auto Group to a friend? Uh, About 7% of the time, which is actually really low, but 7% of the time, we get a six or less If we get a six or less, we have a process where we know the managers are on it. Like we call the customer we try to make it. We screwed up. Usually we screwed up. Like the 30 minute oil change took two and a half hours or, you know, they said they'd have the car ready for me to test drive uh, when I got there and I still waited for an hour and a half or whatever, like whatever happened. Right. Yeah. We get that feedback. It does not increase the number of reviews that we get on Google. It does not do anything for our OEM measurements or report cards or whatever, but it does show us, you know, what's happened. Now, that's the negative side. But the positive side, which I'm a big proponent of focusing and high fiving positive feedback about 80 percent of the time, we're getting somebody that gives us a nine or 10. So sometimes they put comments so often they put comments of like so and so is great. Mm-hmm. Well, that gives us an opportunity as a management team to go talk to that person that actually did the work and say, hey, high five. You did an awesome job with Matt. Like, good right. job. You yeah. know? And, you know, I think managers, we always have the tendency to focus on the negative And like, maybe that's just human nature, the human condition. I'm not sure. But ultimately, there's there's a lot to be gained with focusing on the sun and the positive, too.
0: Yeah, it's. I think it's, I think you're right about that. It's like, if I point out the problem, then it gives us an opportunity to work on it. Yep. Not realizing, no, there's actually a lot more that can come from positive reinforcement. And, and you know, I, I remember the story. Shoot, I wish I remember the book. Maybe it's how to win friends and influence people. That sounds about right. It's about the, the test pilot who m- made a mistake and ended up, you know, crashing the plane and, you know, whatever it was, $50 million plane and super expensive. And he was super afraid of seeing the CEO of the company and facing him and there's the CEO and he could see him as he parachutes down to the ground and you can see the CEO standing there and he's just freaked out. And, and as he approaches the hangar, the CEO is like, are you okay? Are you safe? Are you good? Yeah. Yes. I bet you learned one thing you're not going to do next time. Like it was <laughs> like, you know, he yeah. didn't have to raz on him. He didn't have to whatever he, to me, that's very positive, like way of, okay, cool. So we just lost 50 mil <laughs> or whatever the dollar figure was. But are you okay, first and foremost? And I bet you learned something you're not going to do next time.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, love that. I love those subtle leadership examples. I mean, there's all sorts of stories where you see those really excellent leaders take advantage of those moments in time and those opportunities.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, such a huge impact on where things can go. I think sometimes we forget, based on the whole technology conversation, that it is actually the people in this business, the powerful, great, capable, talented beautiful, amazing people in this industry that are the ones that are going to move it forward, not the dependency upon one tech alone. You know, I, I look at examples. I've brought this up on the podcast before. When we often think about disruption, we think of companies like Airbnb or Uber or whatever. But when you really look at the concepts or the philosophy behind disruptive innovation, it has nothing to do with, um, you know, some small startup that came up with a new fresh concept. It has to do with, serving the needs of a specific market in a way that a larger incumbent could not do it. Well, in the case of Uber, you know, we often so it gets misrepresented. We think in order to be disruptive, we have to come up with something that's never existed before. Is that really what Uber did? Ride sharing existed. Taxi cabs existed. People paying for it existed. People were already paying for rides. Uh, cars already existed they didn't invent those they didn't invent the internet payment processing, smartphone apps they just took resources that already existed and marketed it in a in a new experience for a specific you know target market and now look 10 years later, which by the way they started during the last recession, 10, 12 years later, they're now in a position where they can be handing out billions in relief and, you know, philanthropic type, you know, offerings to a market simply because they assembled things that already exist. And so I love what you're talking about. You're talking about, hey, I've already got a tool set that already exists, how I leverage it, how I leverage people, how I leverage process or or have the right process to leverage all of this. That's what actually is going to make the difference.
1: And there's an art to like focus decision-making and what things do you care about? So, and we all struggle, even a group like Wester, we struggle with caring about too many things, right? We have too many initiatives, too many things to focus on. Yeah. And uh, often you don't get the depth, or, you know, the push that's required because you're a little bit, little bit scattered, right? So you're like doing this thing real fast and you're moving on to the other thing. Right. But there's an art and a skill. And that's like the most senior leaders of our industry, especially in the retail side, need to set those agendas really intentionally, you know, and, and just be interested in how can we thrive. Dealership groups are customer service organizations. That's what we are, right? Like, so we need to be all in in whatever mechanisms and ways that, that matter to best serve customers. Otherwise we're just a commodity throughput that's very easily replaced by Amazon, right? Amazon has a better buying experience. (laughs) So when they start selling Toyota Corollas, you know, and they got 10 Toyota dealerships that they can drop ship from, you know, you better have a customer experience that's worth something. Right. Yeah. You know, now that, that, that sort of goes a little too far and like discounts our people. Um, but, but I know that that's, I view that as like a longer term risk of like something that could take certainly the commodity business. I still think that there's an art to this, to this business and like understanding people say they want a Corolla, but they leave in a Hummer. Like, you know, like things like that happen all the time. So, you know, like people don't really know what they want, which is why there's real estate agents still. Right. Like, you know, these types of things like human beings can guide other human beings. And there's a skill in that um, that I think is often discounted by the tech providers and the OEMs who maybe don't fully understand it because they never sold a car in their life.
0: It's so funny you say real estate agents, because for the longest time, I felt like, you know, it was so nice to sell my own home standing next to a real estate agent, because for the longest time, I was like, what are you even doing? Like, cool. You put an ad on MLS or real realtor dot com or whatever it is. And, but at the end of the day, I was there. You told me not to be here, but you had all these showings and no luck. And then I end up selling my own house and I got to pay you the 20 grand or 20. And then I realized though, and this was years after when maybe I had gained a little more self awareness. I'm like, ah, but you know, it was really worth it having them there when I was like, wait, should I bring this up? Yeah. Or wait, should I show them that? Or is this a big deal? And, and to have their, understanding of the market and their experience to 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 counsel me that like that's worth something it can't be discredited and we see that all the time yeah there's this negative stigma in the car industry that you know is hopefully hopefully going away but i mean people still don't realize even when they leave a bad review how integrated the sales professional was in their decision making process and showing them and trying to make it as easy as possible and and so I find it interesting where I re- I'll, you'll read a negative review and it's like yeah it took so long and they did that but but Matt was good, you know Matt Matt really was able to show us a couple of things that we never saw but it's like yeah do you not realize that helped you make the purchase. You know.
1: Well, consumer demands are really challenging and increasing and, you know, it's hard sure. to fully execute, right? And that's what our challenge is, to continue to improve the experience, make it faster, make it more flexible, make, give it, you know, the Burger King treatment, have, have it your way or whatever. Sure. Uh, you know, and I think we need to continue to strive for that, you know, and, and looping full circle with all the co-op and OEM and mandates in our industry. I just don't believe that that's going to create the flexibility necessary to move us forward in meaningful ways, Um, you know, maybe we'll take incremental steps forward, but you know, it's just going to be real challenging. If it's always this fragmented world um, it's going to be hard, right? Yeah.
0: Right. Love it, man. Um, I do have one more question for you and it's all about how does an individual overseeing the work of 26 and counting rooftops manage to get unified buy-in, but we're going to save the answer for our exclusive DPB pro community. I know that's a question that a lot of people have. How do you get buy-in well, if you want to hear the answer, definitely go check out our Facebook DPB Pro group. Apply for membership. Hey, this is not your typical group. This is not where you complain about your pay plan and your comp plan. And then This is where we talk about gratitude, positivity, culture, leadership, the things that we've talked about in essence that, that Matt has given a master class on in this episode of the podcast. But if you want to hear his answer about how he manages expectation and gets buy-in across such a massive group. You're going to have to apply and join over in the DPB Pro community on Facebook. Matt, man, seriously, a masterclass. Like, I love this conversation, dude. You are so dialed in. I could listen to you talk about this stuff for hours and hours and hours. And I, trust me, people that know me know that when I say stuff like that, it's authentic and genuine. If you sucked, I'd probably tell you <laughs> it sucked. But, but this was phenomenal, dude. And I'm so glad that we were able to connect. Um, How can those listening uh, connect with you and just follow your narrative and your outlook on the industry? I would say the easiest way to get at me
1: is find me on LinkedIn, Matt Lasher. um, And I try to be responsive to DMs and other things. But similar to the podcast, I'm not that receptive to cold pitches. So be careful. Uh, Be be careful there. I might call you out for a, a lazy pitch. Um, but yeah, just look me up, Matt Lasher. So happy to connect, and um, you know, appreciate whoever listened, and you know, would love the feedback to the show too. So, you know, if you disagree with something, I love that too. So
0: amazing! Thanks so much for joining me on the Dealer Playbook Podcast. You got it, buddy. I'm Michael Cirillo, and you've been listening to the Dealer Playbook Podcast. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button wherever you're listening right now. Leave a rating or review and share it with a colleague. If you're ready to make big changes in your life and career and want to connect with positive, nurturing automotive professionals, join my exclusive DPB Pro community on Facebook. That's where we share information, ideas, and content that isn't shared anywhere else. I can't wait to meet you there. Thanks for listening.